0: Hello and welcome to another episode of The Legal Breakdown. Hello and welcome to a joint seminar with Alliance Legal and Made with Maturity. Uh, we are doing a seminar today on keeping your website legal compliant and we will be going through a number of points and a number of elements that you should have in your website. Um, ben Sterling is with us today to talk about design of the websites and what he does with clients to keep them legally compliant. And I'm Josh Gardner from Alliance Legal, and I will be talking about all the legal aspects of keeping your website legal, and how we can help do certain documents to make sure you add them to your website. Um, Over to you, Ben.
1: Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, Josh. Um, Yeah, good to uh, be here. Um, Yeah, like Josh said, I'm Ben Sterling. Um, I'm the UX lead and co-founder of Made with Maturity. And yeah, we're a UX web design agency, um, helping clients all around the region nationally and internationally with web design and marketing. So in today's session, we're going to look at best practice uh, in terms of design for websites, and then move on to the legal side of things. So the details that you must include um, if you're a a business or an organization with a website. Uh, We're going to look at privacy policies, um, cybersecurity implications, um, cookie policies, Terms of use, accessibility when it comes to websites, um, respecting copyright and trademarks, and then kind of a bit of a, a summary. So that's what we're aiming to do today. Um, so, first of all, best practice for websites. I'm not going to give a, a full kind of detailed tutorial on how to design a website, but from, uh, from our perspective, because we're a UX agency, we're a user experience agency, um, the most important part we feel is understanding your end users, so your end customers or your end kind of stakeholders who are going to be using the website or the application. Understanding them, um, understanding their needs and then designing something that answers that need. Um, so common, I think we see you know in our world that lots of extra content is just added to websites because people think that's what you need to add. Um, so don't add content just for the sake of it. Make sure everything you're adding actually fulfills a need um, that, and helps your end users kind of understand your product or your service um, and if you can you know work with a professional designer or professional design company uh, because the quality of the website will be um, usually a lot better so no that's a little plug for us as well by the way legal side that's for you Josh
0: well thanks Ben that's really interesting to know that you don't fill your website with a lot of content to just for the sake of doing it that's good to know simplicity is the best it sounds like on that Yeah, absolutely. Um, So, the legal side of things today, we're going to talk about um, what the Company Act requires and what you should put into your website. This is one of the longest pieces of legislation in UK law. And on our next slide, I'm just going to outline a few points that you should have in the website. So, if you are a limited company, you should obviously outline your full name of the company, not just your trading name. I would also recommend when you're doing this to put the full name and trading name next to each other so everyone is clear who you are. Uh, Put your company house registration number in, your place of registration, that would be uh, the country of registration and the registered office address. This won't necessarily be the address you operate from, this would be the address that you are actually registered at. So make sure you check company's house to make sure this matches. could be your home address rather than your office address. Um, Contact details including an email address, um, also include the details of how to contact the business by non-electronic means because you have to be open to everyone for accessibility. Um, A VAT number for the business if you are that registered and details of any trade body or regulatory registrations that you may have. So with this one specifically from a point of view of a law firm you would have an SRA logo the solicitor regulation authority logo on your website or a council of license conveyancing logo on your website and this will be a hologram basically to show that you are still registered with them and you're still a legally regulated company if that logo goes blank for any reason it means you're not regulated anymore as a trade body with them so it's important to make sure all these memberships are kept up to date and this code is correct in your website so anyone that goes to your website knows that you are regulated and that they can connect you back to your regulatory body at any point um, ben on this one is there anything else that you would recommend for clients
1: um no i don't think so i mean other than um you mentioned there about the kind of the, the regulators for um the legal industry obviously there's different kind of regulations for lots of different sectors um, so while these are very generic above there are specific ones for every kind of every sector so yeah it's important to have a look at what they are and yeah yeah, you can work that through with your legal professionals or your web design agency yeah from a
0: design point of view would you put these in the footer or would you put them in a separate page what's the best option
1: yeah no that's a very good point um i think as long as they are presentable on your website that's absolutely fine it doesn't have to be like the largest text on every single page um, I think this kind of information is the most relevant kind of in the footer, small kind of text. You need to make sure it's readable and accessible. Um, but yeah, it can can be smaller um, and a lot more kind of less priority in, in terms of what you, the main kind of message on the website.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: Um, even if you are just a sole
0: trader or a partnership, it's still important to display the address of your primary place of business. And this must easily be found. What I would suggest is try and with legislation always be, over cautious as it were so I would follow the limited company route as much as possible obviously it doesn't necessarily apply to the sole trader partnership but make sure your address is there VAT numbers are up and any other regulatory connections regardless if you're sole trader or a limited company obviously many law firms from my point of view because that's the industry that I'm in a lot of them are partnerships so you would still need to abide by the regulatory logos on your website Um, From a privacy policy point of view, um, there's three different types of document that you can put on your website. But as you will see on the slide, that these can all be put into one document under the privacy policy. So your privacy notice will explain how you collect the data for your customers and how you will use it. The cookie disclosure will explain how you use your cookies on your site and how they will be stored. And the disclaimer, and this is the important one I would recommend for everyone, is to exclude any liability to your business, to any of your users on your website. You do not wanna be caught by any, if they use your website, they get a virus or anything like that. You wanna make sure that it's not your responsibility if anything happens to them while using your site. So that is a big one that I've seen recently that many people haven't been excluding the liability correctly. Um, As I've said, this can all be put into one document. And if you look at my website, it's probably not 100% legally Uh, Correct at the moment. Now I've done all this research for this webinar and we will be going over it, but we have a separate um, link on the bottom of our website for a privacy policy, which goes to a separate page. It's quite a lengthy document, but it's all there. The likelihood of the users actually reading it is probably minimal, but at the end of the day, you're protecting yourself and it's there if they want to see it, and you'll then legally comply with anything that you're doing. Uh, This is very much also in line with the UK general data protection regulations, and very important that you meet all these going forward since 2018.
1: Brilliant, I think I'll just add on there, um, you mentioned it, Joshua, that all of those can be part of one privacy policy. Um, But yeah, there's many clients that actually prefer to have them as as separate documents because they find that actually it's just easier to kind of write them in different kind of silos. Um, And that's not a, you're not breaking the law by having them separately. But you just can have, you can have them in one. I think that's what you were saying, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, and I think what I'd say there, Ben, is adding to what you've just said, I would probably talk to not just the legal professional there, but also your website designer to say how best it would be to suit the website. So obviously, like we've just touched on the UK General Data Protection Regulations, the GDPR, as it's normally shortened to, is the outline of how you should be handling your customer data and protecting their privacy collecting and storing the user data um, and using systems such as MailChimp is a good way of doing this. What I was also add is any data you have from the client, you need their express permission to be able to use their data for marketing purposes. The old days of being handed a business card and bombarding them with their email, using their email and bombarding them with marketing material is not acceptable anymore as an acceptance of it getting your newsletter you have to have an express permission to be able to send them the information. So what I would recommend there is if you can, and Ben's probably better placed than I am on this with MailChimp, maybe you do a blanket email to say, will you be happy to accept stuff from us? Or maybe a template saying, we've got your business card, thank you for your information, would you be happy to accept marketing materials from us? Just be a bit careful on this because it can be borderline that you're technically pushing them for marketing. And from a solicitor point of view, we are actually restrained from doing that. We can't even send an email out to ask them for their permission. So technically, when we get their business card from them, we should be asking them for their permission and getting that business card at that point saying, would you be happy for us to add this to the marketing list? So that's a that's a big, important point, because obviously you can be fined. I believe it's 4% of turnover for breaching GDPR. So make sure anything you do and any seminars, webinars that you do, have a list that uh, attendees can fill out with their name and email address and then a tick box next to it saying we're happy to accept marketing emails. That way you can get over it because you've got your implied permission. Um, Again, make sure you understand what's in your privacy policy. Me and Ben talked previous to the webinar about you don't just want a tick box exercise. You need to understand what is in your privacy policy and make sure you follow it. So if anyone says you haven't followed your policy, you can pinpoint them to the exact clauses in your policy. And if it has not been updated since GDPR, urgently do this as you're already in breach of probably GDPR regulations. The other point um, is the ICO regulations, Information Commission office. I would recommend regardless of checking the legislation, get registered it's 70 pounds a year and at least if you've got your registration number you know that you'll meet you've got your license to be able to process data as a data controller um ben would you recommend putting this number on the website the ico number or what would you think
1: um i believe when we've done it before we've included it in the privacy policy okay um so therefore it's in the website um yeah i wouldn't necessarily put it in the footer or anything like that it's just something which is kind of a way if people want to find it they can find it
0: okay yeah that's fine um so in conclusion to that make sure it's on the website somewhere to be able to find it
1: brilliant Cybersecurity. so um specifically they're, they're not you know specifically kind of legal requirements um but just kind of very much kind of best practice and looking after your customers and looking after your customer's data. Um, it's a kind of a given now that almost all websites have an SSL certificate so at the beginning of the website URL it's HTTPS instead of HTTP um, and that you know, encrypts personal data on, on websites um, I think almost all websites have them um, if your website hasn't got one you should definitely get one um, there are free versions out there and there are paid for versions out there the free ones are great um, so for the majority of, of, of needs and um, the second point of updating your website software regularly um, and th- this is important because there's a lot of kind of content management systems out there. Uh, one of the ones that we use, which I believe is really popular in the world, is uh, WordPress. I think something like a quarter of all websites globally are run by WordPress. Um, these days there's something around those sort of figures. Um, and you know, WordPress gives kind of updates that you will kind of manually, you know, add. Um, and activate and it's important to keep those up to date because uh it just keeps it free from hackers and viruses and things like that um and then testing your website for security vulnerabilities um, with things like wordpress often in those kind of updates that kind of covers you for that um but if you've got more of a like a risk of of, of losing your website if you, if your website if your website fails you know how much of an impact is that going to have on your business or organization if that is a high risk or if you think that's actually going to have a really big impact then it probably shouldn't be tested periodically um, with something like a penetration test again if you're interested in th- that, what that means you know, we can we can tell you about that later and um put, put, point you in the right direction of the organizations that can do penetration testing um but yeah it's about just keeping things um as safe as you can be you know within realistic expectations um, and ultimately protecting your, uh, the data of your customers.
0: Um, can I just ask a question on that, Ben? The SSL certificate, what's the difference between the free and the
1: paid-for ones? Um, that's a very good question, Josh. We always use the free ones. Okay. Um, you like me to pause this and cut this bit out of the recording. <laughs> that's, that's fine. Um, but there are paid-for ones, and I think it's more for kind of large e-commerce sites um that sort of thing um, but yeah we'd have to i think i think almost all of our clients use the free ones so okay
0: that's fine do any of your clients use cyber essentials um, that certificate in cyber um, plus
1: yeah a few of them do um, uh, we ourselves use it i think for working with ministry of defense and public sector which some of our clients we have to be cyber essentials approved um, it's a great benchmark to kind of say that you've done um, and it yeah, it kind of shows people you are taking security seriously. So yeah, a lot of a lot of customers still do use that. Yeah. Is that something you can help clients with? Um, we we actually will point them on to IT companies and security specialists that are okay. also local. Um, so cost things are very reasonable. Okay, that's brilliant. Thanks, Bill. Um, cookie policy. So uh, the reason I've got the opportunity to talk about cookie policy is through all the legal documents, we always recommend that you speak to a legal professional to create these documents, um, with the exception of the cookie policy. The cookie policy is something that we as web development, we look after um, because it's very technical. In terms of the structure of that, it's it's structured in a legal way, um, but the content is, is very technical and it wouldn't be uh, fair for a legal person to know exactly what cookies we've decided to use and not use. Um, you do need to, have a, a cookie notification and um, most websites is a cookie banner so as soon as you kind of come into the website there's a banner at the top or at the bottom or some sort of alert that cookies are being used on this website um, you must give users the opportunity to opt out or opt in um, you can't just assume they're all going to opt in um, because at the end of the day it's a it's a legal requirement you're going to be putting a small amount of data on their computer um, which is a cookie um, and you need permission for that. Uh, the, the way that we do it at Made with Maturity, there's um, a cookie plugin. There's lots of different cookie plugins you can get, um, which are kind of ha- that, that manage these. Um, we use a specific one. Um, and the way that that is used um, is specifically, it does not put any cookies on the machine unless somebody consents to it. And that includes things like analytics. So when someone arrives at your website, there's no kind of Google Analytics code that's inserted onto the the website or on the the user's machine until they select, yes, I'm happy to accept cookies. Um, And that's quite an important one because there's lots of cookie plugins that don't operate in that way, um, but a few of them do. So it's just making sure you get the right one to stay legally compliant. Um, The cookie statement can be a standalone page on your website. Um, or it can be included in your privacy policy. I think we mentioned that earlier. It can be in one place or in a few different places. Often on the sites that we make, we have a separate cookie policy. Um, we just find it easier for people to kind of specifically thinking about cookies they know exactly in one place to go to instead of trying to find it um, in a longer policy. I believe with some
0: cookie banners from what I looked at while well, we would. Drafting this is it, it actually has the link on the banner that pops up so you can click on the pot, see where the policy is before you even agree to the terms and conditions of the um, cookie policy.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, that's a nice a nice way of kind of linking directly to it. Um, and again, the kind of policy, uh, the cookie banner that we often use the plugin, um, it gives you the ability to select which cookies you would like to okay. accept and which cookies you don't want to accept. So it gives you that granularity. Yeah. Um, instead of just a blanket except all
0: yeah and i think that's important the analogy i would probably use to this is if you go to a car park you have to see the terms and conditions before you drive into the car park so you know what you're agreeing to if you then get ticketed while you're in the car park the ticket's not valid because you haven't seen the terms and conditions before you enter nice analogy yeah Right, so the the terms of use, we've touched on them previously a bit with the, um, the disclaimer in relation to your liability, but the important thing to obviously understand here is what terms of use do you want to give to your users? So what's the point of your website is probably the first thing. What are you expecting your users to use it for? And you need to limit their use of that website in terms of what you expect them to use it for. So if you are a information website on, I'm going to say cooking recipes, that's basically um, what they're going to be using the website for. So I think it's important not to just say you're using this website under standard terms of a website. I think you need to limit what this website is for within the terms of use to make it totally clear to the user you're here for this purpose, not for anything else. And that's become quite relevant in a few law cases recently with actual lawyers in terms of use specifically for their conveyancing services i know totally different perspective but i think it's important that terms of use need to be very limited to what you're trying to achieve here um e-commerce stores now this is um quite an important point in relation to the use um ben if we got the stuff on the other the next slide yeah. on That one. so the terms of use for e-commerce obviously we need to you need to be compliant with the range of services that you're offering or products that you're offering. So make sure that includes any legislation you need to meet with the products that you're selling, as well as what use the websites to be used for. Also the distance selling regulations for business to consumers is important to have in there, as well as business to business transactions, you need to understand the differences. And what I would suggest in this is to have two sets of terms of use on your website, one for consumers, one for businesses, and understand what sector you fit in. If you are just a business-to-business company, then focus on that. If you're a business consumer, just deal with that. But you do have the crossover. Obviously you get businesses using Amazon buying things rather than being a consumer, and they do actually have different terms and conditions. So it's definitely important to understand this. Uh, one example I can give is Currys, for instance, Currys PC World. I don't think companies understand in some respects, I've seen cases where they've bought computer systems from them and they think they're under the business consumer because they bought it for under their name, but they've been using it in a business. As soon as Couriers and PC World realise that, they say, well, no, technically you're under the business to consumer legislation. So if, sorry, business to business legislation. So it definitely affects their refund policies on that. So it's definitely important to make sure everyone's aware. And that comes into your contracts with your customers as well. Um, like we said, consumer rights need to be included in this. The required information needs to be put forward before an order is placed so everyone understands the full cost, payment terms, delivery arrangements, and rights to cancel. And that's where it gets the difference between the business to consumer and business to business. You can add a fee for a restocking fee. So if you are selling a product, you could have a fee for a return for restocking, but you need to be a bit careful with that because you need to make it clear at the time of the sale That they're fully aware of that and i wouldn't put that just in the small print i'd make that very clear in your uh, invoice in the bottom um after an order is placed obviously include a copy of the contract to the purchase and fulfill the order right through the contract obviously if you breach anything then the customer has a right to come back to you they obviously need to be of satisfactory quality fit for purpose and described on your website as they should be going back to basic contract law And that's not just website terms of use, that is basic contract law. You need to make sure your products are fit for whatever purpose they're being put forward to.
1: Sounds very reasonable. Okay, thanks Ben. Um, Accessibility. So again, a slightly more kind of technical um, legal requirement. Um, There is uh, the Equality Act of 2010. Um, which is kind of does set out to make sure that you know we are all um, being accessible for all audiences uh, on our websites and and while it's only uh, public sector there's a legal requirement um, to have a minimum of level a or double a um, for accessibility it's a great benchmark to have uh, for corporations as well for for businesses and organizations to have that as a a minimum kind of target of where where you're you're aiming for Again, it just keeps you safe under the uh, Equality Act 2010, because you know, you know if, you, if you're hitting that level, you know you're going to be um, within that within the realms of that. Um, so accessibility uh, works on the most used assistive technologies. Um, if you're hitting that level of, of, of AA, and, and the exact requirements of what AA is not isn't, um, you can speak with your web development company. Um, it's, a lot of it's kind of technical um and it's just kind of requirements of how the codes written, and how the design is how the layout is um, but yeah once you're hitting those it'll work on all the different devices it'll work on um, assistive technologies like screen readers um and the ability to kind of flick color if you if contrast is an issue in terms of you know how users see content um, and the final point of including people with disabilities in user research um is is important so if you're looking to have an accessible website all users and all stakeholders then it's important to kind of get a fair balance of all of those stakeholders so if if you're a portion of your users um you know if if it's for the public then a portion of them will be ones with disabilities so it's important to get user research from them as well um and yeah if you can have an accessibility statement on your website then that's great Um, josh i don't i don't think that's a legal requirement is it having an accessibility statement but it's more of a best practice would you say Yeah, it's a best practice
0: to just have an accessibility statement definitely on the website. I would um, always go with be over the top with anything, even if it's not a legal requirement, just so it's all there. If it ever becomes a legal requirement, at least you're covered. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, So respecting copyright, um, me and Ben are both going to talk about this because there's a kind of a crossover here in relation to services offered and who owns certain things. Um, So all websites and their content are copyright protected, and that's why in the bottom of websites you see copyright 2022, for instance, the year that it was kind of done, and that's when the copyright starts. Copyright legislation is anyone that creates copyright, it is theirs until their death plus 70 years. Um, So that will always be the case. Um, However, the copyright text can act as a deterrent from others stealing your content if you make it clear. If they do decide to use your content, as long as they refer back to you, that can get them around that kind of uh, copyright legislation. But technically, they should also ask for your permission, depending on how they're using it and there is a way again you could add this to maybe one of the policies or maybe there's something you can put in the footer or somewhere in your website to say if you want to use our content you need our express written permission if you will see in many books when you open books in the first page i think it says if you want to reproduce any of this you need the express permission of the publisher to be able to do that so you could put the same in a document within your website Um, It was your interest to obviously fully enforce the copyrights and get others to respect your copyright, mainly down to brand. And I think that's the biggest thing. If you are a digital business and you have specific logos or a specific design, uh, Ben, I guess your company is probably one of the examples, really. You've got a a colour that you like to have with your company. You've got a specific logo. Um, and you've obviously got specific designs that you have with your website. If someone tried to copy that kind of color coordination, regardless if they were using your logo or not, you would like to enforce that to stop others from using it. And the same with me, really, with my kind of color and branding, I would want to make sure no one was kind of copying that branding to be similar to me or using similar wording. So it's definitely important, such as if you were Nike or Supreme or anything like that, you've got a very basic logo, and basic color coordination so you want to make sure that's fully protected. So what I would suggest and I don't know if Ben Ben might have software to do this but is there a way to just check competitors to make sure they're not copying your logos and wordings I think there is some kind of copyright software you can type in certain wording that will check websites. I remember I used it at university to make sure you're not plagiarizing certain documents and things and it tells you a percentage of how much of this is copied from other sources. So maybe a regular check on this is one way of doing it. Um, The other way of obviously protecting your brand is trademarking. So you can trademark words, specific wordings. You can trademark logos and you can trademark designs as well, but then you can go into patents and that kind of thing as well. Um, With a trademark, if you're going to go with wording, it has to be unique wording and no one else should be using it at the moment. A logo can be a bit more, it can have, Certain wording in it, it could be the same as someone else, but the design has to be unique in itself. So just remember what you're trying to protect. Are you protecting an image? Are you the logo or are you wanting protecting wording? Um, the cost of doing that to go to the intellectual property office is 170 pounds for an application, obviously, plus whoever you're using to do that work for you. We're happy to do any copyright work for you and trademark applications and talk you through the process if needed um from your point of view ben obviously we talked about content and who owns the designs of a website so i think that'd uh, be good for you to kind of explain a bit more on
1: yeah and josh that's a really really important one um because obviously we're working with many clients um and yeah we create and design uh, websites for them um and yeah people are asking you yeah, who, who owns that copyright is it the design team is it the client um and as far as I understand, the the default um, you always need to check the terms and conditions with the agency, with the design agency. That's the, that's that's the, that's what you need to do. Um, but by the by default, um, the the copyright remains with the designer, with the design team. Um, so when we had our terms and conditions uh, created, I think that was the kind of the default that we had. But actually, we've changed it. Um, so over the years, we found that that point was often asked about. Um, And we're quite an easygoing kind of company. And we just find it easier just to say, you look, when at full payment, the the copyright passes to the client. Um, So that's how we choose to do it, but that's not how everyone does it. So it is important to make sure you're looking at the terms and conditions um, with the design agency you're going to use um, and and look at who holds the copyright. You know, at, at what point does it change over? Does it stay with the design team? Okay, good. Just a bit of our summary isn't it so <laughs> who, who 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 knew a website needs all this compliance yeah I think a lot of people
0: um, think you can just put a website up and it's it's all ready to go but um obviously there's a lot more to it than just the design work there's also the compliance behind it and obviously me and Ben are obviously happy to help any way we can to make sure you're compliant going forward.
1: Yeah. So in, in summary of what we we've, we've looked at today um, all of the factors that we, we've mentioned um, must be addressed for every website in the UK to be legally compliant there are a couple of best practice ones in there but hopefully we've been clear about which one's are best practice and which ones are kind of legal requirements um, there are many sectors that have specifics uh, that relate to websites so it's important to make sure you're getting guidance from your kind of um, regular regulatory authority um, the cookie policy your web development company really should provide that. Um, everything else, you know, we always recommend speak to a legal professional, speak to a team like Alliance Legal. Um, and there are templates out there that you that don't need you to go to a legal professional, um, but it's to kind of use them at your own risk. Uh, and we would say specifically those kind of privacy policy documents. They're not just you kind of oh yeah yeah ignore that ignore that ignore that. It really is a like a bullet point list to follow in terms of how you handle your customer's data and your procedures around that. And that should be a living document that you really understand. Um, so just getting kind of, you know, off the shelf privacy policies and off the shelf all your other legal documents, um, it can that can carry quite a bit of risk. Um, and Josh and his team um, can easily kind of create some of those documents for you. So to sum up, Josh, did you want a, a final pitch?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, obviously, if you contact me and Ben, we're obviously happy to work together on anything going forward and put stuff together to make sure it fits with your business and your compliance. So please just feel free to give me a call at Alliance Legal and we can help produce any of the legal documents or any questions you have to um, in relation to websites or any of your business requirements. Just let us know.
1: Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, so we'd love to, yeah, love to work with you, help you with any websites or marketing. Um, we are running a, a 10% off offer for anyone that has seen this webinar. So, if you do get in touch, mention you've, you've seen us here on this webinar with Alliance Legal, and um, we'll give you a 10% off. Yeah, yeah and we'll do the same. Thank you very much. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Thanks very much
1: Thanks for, for listening. Me.
0: Thanks. Okay. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Legal Breakdown. If there's any questions that you would like to ask, please feel free to get in
1: contact and subscribe to the YouTube and Spotify channels, thank you.